Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. I had the opportunity this week to speak with Susan Levi-Peters about residential schools as well as many other things. So you'll notice that you have two episodes that dropped this week. A couple of weeks ago, I saw some comments online about residential schools and those comments made me really mad. But as I was thinking about it, I realized that maybe people who wrote that just didn't realize what residential schools actually were? Probably. Yeah, I was thinking that even myself, like I'm probably not all not as knowledgeable as I should be. I just kind of wanted to talk to someone. Um, I mean, I can do all the research I want online, but I wanted to talk to someone who might have some more firsthand knowledge with what the system was and see if uh, maybe I could just ask you a couple questions from your perspective. Okay, go. Sure. Before we get started into that, can you tell me a little bit about your background, like a brief autobiography? Because I know you've achieved a lot in your life. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, the first woman chief in my community, but I was a council member prior to that, and I became the chief. I wrote a book uh, about the shale gas, and I've been more an, an activist or uh, um, or speaking out on on treaty rights or 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 social justice, or, uh, you know, or the injustice, I should say. Um, and so it's just more like that. I've done workshops and stuff like that, so more an advocate now. Okay, yeah, and your book, I was kind of trying to find it earlier this week. Is it available for purchase online? Uh, it is, but it's not online. I just, I just sell it here and I sold it at the market like um, I don't like I self-published it okay um, so it's it's really um, um, I just like did so many copies and all that but I have some like still left and um, yeah so if people were interested in getting your book we could reach out to you maybe through Facebook yes yeah okay. mm-hmm. so can you talk to me a little bit about what residential schools were like well, what the residential schools they were uh, they were put in place in 1867, I believe. It was about the same time, I would say, the same, uh, maybe a couple years apart as when the Indian Act was made, uh, and it was it was to take the savage out of the Indians, I guess, or or get the Indians out of uh, make us more human, I guess, or something like that. So a lot of the the kids would be taken from their parents' homes, and they would be uh, taken to these schools. They were forced to go there, and they were abused physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally, uh, name it. Some of them died there. And um, the one in Atlantic Canada was in Shubenagadi, Nova Scotia. And there's a reserve there, Shubi, which was in a dispute uh, with uh, with fishing just a month, couple months ago, yeah. actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I believe 100% uh, of them attended that school. But in Ilsebukduk, maybe three or four families attended. 
uh, the rest stayed because we also had Indian Day Schools, which is another uh, skeleton that's just coming out of the closet now, if you want to say it. But so so there was uh, kids that were forced to to attend, and I had that I had that. The opportunity of hearing stories firsthand uh, when I ran for politics because I was a council member before I became a chief. So, um, uh, in our politics, is you do home visits and then you uh, you kind of sit and visit the family and you talk about whatever. So I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of survivors, and some of them told me stories that are were like, oh, it's unbelievable, like. Uh, they were crazy of the beating that they they got and then uh, some of them there was one guy he passed away uh his story was that he drew the canadian flag and i, I talk about that in my book actually because i talk a little bit about residential school mm-hmm. uh, with, with my book i try to talk about a little bit about everything even the elections the, i try to give people um experience of living on reserve but just a tip of it so if you have any more questions you can kind of get into it eh? so but uh so a lot of them the one story that i heard well like i said this well he said he he drew the canadian flag and i remember like being very skeptic about it at the time because i didn't know when the canadian flag was was made or anything like that so i said yeah right i said uh so what does it mean because as an artist and he was an artist i knew that you know when you draw something there's always a meaning to it so uh, he said I was just a little kid, at, and he was in Shubenagadie Residential School, and there was a contest, I guess, to draw a Canadian flag, and he drew it, and uh, he said the two red, red means the Indians from coast to coast, and the white is the, the snow, and the fla- and the leaf is the maple leaf, he said that's common to Canada, and when he went outside the residential school, he would see maple leaves, different colors and all that, and, mm-hmm. and he was also a Toronto maple leaf fan. Okay. So, yeah. So, and he was just a little boy. So I didn't think anything of it. And I, of course I went home and I researched it and lo and behold, there was a contest and it was around the same, same year that he was there anyway. And I didn't, uh, anyway, that was it. He passed away. He became an architect. He went to Harvard after and he became an architect, but uh, he was homeless for many years and then he just received the house and he died at a very young age. And why I'd say this story is because most residential school survivors, a lot of them uh, passed away early mm-hmm. because of the of the abuse that they endured and stuff like that. And a lot of them turned to alcohol and drugs and, and stuff like that. So, you know, that's why I, I, I say talk about his story more, uh, uh, Edward. So, so anyway, uh, after that, I heard from another survivor and he talked about Edward drawing the flag. Uh, so I said, wow, this, this is a true story. But uh, the way uh, this other survivor told me how the school in Nova Scotia closed. It closed in 1967. Uh, was the in June of 1967, June 21st, 1967. He said they were let out for the summer, and in the summertime they would come back to the reserves. And the kids on the reserve were envy of them because they would come home in nice clothes, haircut, and they've been to nice schools. Little did they know they were being abused yeah. because these kids at home were living in poverty or there was no food or stuff like that on reserve. And they were going to Indian Day School themselves. We're getting the same type of abuse, but right on the reserve, which is just recently coming out now. That hasn't yet really hit the, the mainstream media yet on that story yet. So anyway, um, so these kids would come home and uh, on Christmas or, or summertime. So on June 21st, they came home thinking in September they're going to go back. 
And he said in August that got, the car came to pick them up. It was a government car because sometimes the government car would come and pick them up or the RCMPs would, would come and help the government people or whoever would come pick up the kids to make sure that there was no, um, uh, that they were taken, uh, they didn't run away. Yeah. So he said we were, we were, he said, he said I was a little boy and he said as they were putting my sister in the car, uh, he was already inside. Uh, he would um, get get out through the other door. And, uh, you know, so they were kind of like going around in the circles trying to get these kids because they didn't want to go back. And he said at the same time, the chief uh, drove by, uh, the, the chief of the day, and uh, he said he came and he chased them away. This was in August, and he said we were going to go back in September. And he said after that, we never went back. Yeah. That's the same year also that I found out, based on my research, that um, Chief Dan George, from, uh, who was a hereditary chief from British Columbia, made a, a speech to Canada, a uh, uh, layman of confirmation or, or confederation of layman speech, something like that. You can Google it and, and you'll read it. it. It really is a very powerful speech. So he made that and it became very popular. And at the same time, the chiefs were getting more powerful. I think the union of uh, or the, the national chief, national brotherhood of chiefs formed, I think, about the same 1967, 70s and everything. So the residential schools started to close and everything started to come out, but they started to close, but it wasn't such a big hot story until when I became chief in 2004 till 2008, the national chief at the time was Phil Fontaine, who was a survivor of residential school, Start was very act, active, very active in, or very uh, vocal. He started fighting about the residential schools and that's when the apology, he fought for the apology. Yeah. And that's when everything came out. And uh, I think in 1999, the last school closed. But the thing is, is that the abuse that happened in these schools continued in our communities. And I always said that, that, uh, you know, they closed the schools, but the federal government, we're still, we're still getting the abuse. It hasn't stopped. And only I just realized why now, when I did my Indian Day School, uh, why I was feeling that. A lot of the survivors, they, uh, their kids, a lot of them don't finish high school. They mm -hmm. don't force them to school or they don't force them to, to church. But there's a one family here that I know. He, his fam, their family have gone on to post-secondary school, and all his kids and all that. And I think that might be one of the very few residential school survivors' children. That the next generation. My husband's mother went to uh, to residential school. Thinks she was there, but still, all her children did not graduate from high school, nor were they were they forced to go to church or school. Yeah. It. It seems to have like this lasting impact through generations, even if you were sort of indirectly affected by it. Yeah, because mm -hmm. the abuse, the cycle continues because there were kids when they were taken. A lot of these uh, survivors, they were children. They, don't, they were not they were never taught how to how to even be a parent. They were beat, like as a child, they were beaten until they left those schools. And, and every one of them, like the, the stories I heard, it, like it's, it's, it's horrendous, I think is the word, or I don't know, it's, it's crazy. Like they were beaten to a pulp, some of these kids, you know, spanked and locked up in, in little rooms and forced to eat their vomits. And like it, it was, uh, it, it was, it was very sad, it was sexually abused. 
you know, a lot of them were sexual abused. Like, so it, it's, uh, so when they leave these schools, a lot of them, they carry that demon. When, when the apology happened, I think it opened up a lot of wounds, mm-hmm. but it also uh, did a lot of healing. And uh, now uh, we're at a phase now they're looking at the Indian day schools, which are the ones that were on the reserve. And that one, I think, uh, played just as bad as a role as the residential school did, especially in my community anyway. Yeah, so that's basically just the, the school that you would go to during the day and go back home in the evening? Yes, and they were right in the reserve. So, okay. uh, you know, and the abuse was happening. But when you went home, you know, your parents didn't believe it or, they, you know, it was always your fault. Or some of them went home to alcoholic families or abusive families. And so we have, like, you know, at one point in time in the early 1990s, we had, I think, nine suicides in a row in my community. So we have high drug and alcohol abuse, suicides. And it's not only in El Sabuktuk, it's, you know, a lot of First, First Nations, especially the larger ones. And I didn't know it either because we thought it was the norm. And I don't think we, I would have, I would have been able to put the dots together if, um, this Indian Day School, we did the settlement, and a lot of people in my community were told, oh, apply for level one. When I read the application myself, I said, holy, you know, what we went through in there, people should be getting level five. So I, I went back and I questioned it, and then uh, I, told, we got, I got a lawyer to fill out mine, and I'm going for a level five. But these people that have already applied now are reapplying again, and 200 of them uh, when I went back and they told their story to the lawyer and I didn't get to hear because they're all individuals and there's, this is from my community. Mm-hmm. So 200 of over 200 of them, over 200 of us said our stories, did our app are doing our affidavits. And what our lawyer did was um, they put together the type of abuses that happened in that, in the school. And then they used numbers. Like they gave each us a number and I went into the room and, it was like, it was really chilling. It's like the residential school or I felt like um, that shingler's list. I, I just watched that movie that, uh, and when I walked in there and I seen those numbers on the wall and the abuse, I I, ooh, I felt like that. But so now that's got to come out. And now we got to realize, now we're going to realize that, hey, uh, it didn't you know, what happened in residential school happened in our schools right inside, right in our backyard. So everyone was going through that, all the children. Yeah, yeah. And and if you didn't actually go through the abuse, you've seen it. And I didn't, and a lot of us, we didn't realize until we talked about it. I know one of my friends was saying, oh, she remembered her hands thinking. And I said, don't you remember you used to be strapped real bad? And then I started crying because I remembered her being strapped and then all that because I like all the memories and all that. And then, like, but it, because I worked with this lawyer to get these people to come in and, and do that, and uh, uh, they got their money, but they're going to reapply, and they're saying that they were victimized already. Just they were kind of directed to apply for level one, so they won't talk about all the abuse that happened, kind of. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's they've talked about it. Was a, it was a good healing because, for me, 
I didn't know why at my, our community we couldn't break the cycle of drugs and alcohol or, or, or the abuse that was happening or the, you know, all that stuff. Why was it keep going even though the residential schools closed in 1967 and, you know, maybe three or four families from El Sabuktu came. But the abuse was still there. Like, you know, it still happened. Like, I, I was questioning that, all of that. And, but now I, I know the answer because we lifted. You know, we, we didn't have anybody killed, I don't think, but there was a lot of physical, uh, mental, sexual, and spiritual abuse in those school, in the school. And it sounds like they, like even with the residential schools closing, no one was given the tools to help with the abuse and trauma that happened to try and get over that and move forward. No. No, the apology was made. There was dollars put in to try to help the survivors, and they got compensated. But, you know, like like I said, it, it, for me, and I can talk for El Sabuktu, and I'm sure a lot of First Nations that had Indian Day School in their communities faced the same thing, that even though we were getting some resources, and like, you know, um, the, the abuse was still happening in our schools in, 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 inside the reserve. Right. So the problem was still there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The problem was still there. And it's still there. In fact, for me, uh, we took I took my we took our daughter out of high school. Uh, she's going to be 20 in January. And we took her out a couple of years ago, a few years back, because I I felt it, she she wasn't um Something wasn't right. She was being abused in there. She was being bullied, and it, she was being bullied by the teachers, and I didn't like it. So eventually I took her out, and a year later or two years later, she told me, just actually recently, um, she would have committed suicide if we didn't take her out. She didn't know where to turn after that, and that I was so grateful I took her out. Uh, but she was being bullied by the teachers, and it wasn't, and I knew it, uh, so I didn't want her to go through that so I pulled her out and I'm glad I did I, I don't regret it I'm, I'm so, and, and, I'm, and I'm a strong believer of education I got I got my post-secondary I was brought up uh, my family is highly educated we got master's degrees in my family and stuff I was brought up with a white picket fence and stuff like that but still I ended up getting raped and all that and I was abused in school and all that even after high school so still I went through all that because the community is still hasn't healed from yeah. the abuse you know the cycle is still there and so when my daughter when i seen my daughter go through it um i pulled i pulled her out uh of uh, grade 10 i think but there's a lot of kids still ha- happening and i think that's why that this indian day school now is going to open up another skeleton now everybody because everybody thinks with the residential schools being closed, the problem is solved, and now we just heal the wounds. But really, that's not that's not really that the truth, because the the wounds could have been healed long time ago. You know, it, it only takes one generation really to we can heal it very easily. But when you keep the abuse uh, going, you know, it's not going to heal. And it, and the school now we're building a new school, and I met with my chief and council, and I told them about my findings of this Indian Day school, and I told them that uh, we're building a new school, and that abuse cannot go in that new school. It's got to stop now, really. But my daughter, uh, our last one, um, she went through it, and we took pulled her out. So. Let's 
The Truth and Reconciliation Commission called residential schools a cultural genocide, and you mentioned that a little bit earlier, how they were trying to remove people, your, people's culture, essentially. Mm-hmm. They were not allowed to speak their language, our language, Micmac. So a lot of them, um, they lost their language. A lot of lost their language. They were not allowed to practice they're spiritual, like they were. They had they had to be baptized, be Roman Catholic. But Roman Catholic for us in the Mi'kmaq, that was our 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 will, because uh, as Mi'kmaqs we have a peace alliance. We had a peace alliance with the Pope going dating back in 1610. So we had a treaty when the Pope was a the big king of the United Kingdom. So we have a peace. So for us. Uh, at one point in time, there were no priests. I think it was like 70 years there was no priest in this area. So we kept the, the the prayers going. So, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was forced upon us because we had our churches and everything. So it was more, We it was something. And when I look at both religions and I look at both the history and everything, it, there's no, even to this day, our culture, uh, some some churches don't allow the the smudging and all that. Our church, we do it, uh, and and they're like you know we we combine the two. Our our tradition, like the way I told them way back uh, when they were going to take our priests away and our elders were freaking out, and I said you know they can't because really. Roman Catholic is our religion, and the sweat lodge, the the fegal feather, and the ceremonies is our tradition. It's who we are. Mm-hmm. So you know, and Roman Catholic is what the choice we made when we had a treaty with the Pope, just like we have a treaty with Great Britain, uh, the peace and friendship treaties, and with France we have that too. So that's why when the deportation happened. We protected the French because we have a peace and friendship alliance with the with France when France had a monarchy. But we still we still honor that we still honor any treaty we have, peace and friendship. Because as Mi'kmaq, um, we say it lasts as long as the sun and moon shall endure. So that we're brought up with that with that kind of a teachings. And as a French Acadian, I'd like to thank you for helping during the deportation because. That was another uh, part of history that wasn't great. Yeah, yeah, and I think it it it, uh, it it you know the people did what they could do at at that time because the the French would have been the first people that we would have uh, connected with or we lived side by side or the first peace alliance we had would have been with the French and then with the Pope and then it would have been with Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So based on our history, so we have a. Uh, um, like even our language, we would adopt the French word if we didn't have something, uh, or we would say French this, like for example, uh, we didn't have cows. So um, the Mi'kmaq word for a cow is a French moose, if you translate it okay. from Mi'kmaq to English. So you see, we would adopt, uh, or we would say French, because we had a word for a French person. Mm-hmm. You see, we, we, we gave a word and all that. So we... we 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 know there was uh, the first contact would have probably been with with the French the first people we would have lived side by side. I mean the information you're talking about about the day schools is new to me. I wasn't aware of that at all, and I don't think I'm the only one. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're not. You're you're. You, in fact, uh, CBC is looking into doing a story on it. Uh, 
talking with our lawyer and everything. I'm not sure where they're at yet or what's going on with that. But like I said, it hasn't really come out yet because our lawyer is wrapping up the 200 files that he has to do. And, uh, you know, the people that were 80 years old that went to Indian Day School in Big Cove just went to as, just as bad as abuse as the people that went to residential school. And a lot of them went home to alcohol, uh, alcoholic families or, or family violences or stuff like that. And so it was like, and, but I see the abuse a little bit less, a little bit less, uh, not much as the years went up. Eh? Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, with this Indian day school, I think after that comes out, people are going to get more, it's going to get a lot better. Yeah. And I think you, you said something important that, talking about it does reopen the wounds but can also yes. lead to healing yes yeah yes definitely because it, it makes us understand why because for me i could not understand why i could not understand why uh I, I i was brought like i said there was no family violence in my family there was no alcohol there was no drugs i had a white picket fence i was brought up you know uh, I had I didn't have poverty, um, so I was brought up good, but yet still I had you know when I would drink uh, you know I can't handle it or I didn't have heavy drug problem. And I talk about it in my book, but I was raped when I was in high school. So, uh, but even still, I still said you know I I dealt with that, but uh, it was only when I did the Indian Day School and realized that hey we went through all this abuse and we thought it was normal. Mm-hmm. It was the norm of life. And I used to do public speaking, like last couple of years, I would do public speaking. I talked to social workers and all that at UDM and all that. And at that time, I still, you know, in my mind, I would say, like, my community. So we have a lot of resources. We have, you know, and there's a lot of people that have, we have gone post-secondary education, a lot of highly educated people and stuff like that. But there's also a, a high poverty and, you know, high drug and alcohol abuse and violence and teenage pregnancies or or and and i couldn't understand why and now i know why it, it's because the, the abuse is still happening in our schools the kids are still facing it so we have to the only way to do that is to talk about it and and face it on and then move on and stop it yeah, there's still work to be done there definitely there is definitely work there's there's a lot of work that has been done but there is a lot more work to be done. I've, I've, I just moved back to the community. We moved out for about seven years. Seven years we moved off reserve, and I've looked from outside looking in. So you know, it's a different. Uh, you see dif- differently. I've done a lot of healing myself personally, and we've just moved back now. So I don't know the too much the state of the community, but I do know that uh, based on Facebook and everything, uh, there's still a lot of high drugs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, um, I'd like to, I'm, I'm going to go in and find, I'm going to see more statistics. I'd like to see more statistics. They did build a new uh, child and family center. So I'm figuring there must be more kids uh, at, uh, in care mm-hmm. if they can afford a building like that. You know, so so I'm so I'm thinking there must be um, something, you know, something something hasn't changed yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I know that there's no, you know, there's a very big, huge backlog of housing. I'm living in a camper right now, but I'm building. I'm hopefully we can build our. I mean, get our uh, house all all done before, right? 
and we're lucky it's still you know minus one and plus two so <laughs> yeah it hasn't gotten very cold yet but it's no, definitely no, coming no. yeah so we're kind of lucky but because we're if we live on reserve we're homeless and, there, and there's a lot of reasons behind that and even if we went to the bank we cannot mortgage a house even if we do qualify because we live on a reserve on this bank like there's a whole things in there that so and and those are the things that need to be fixed too they gotta there has to be a lot more opportunity for my people like oh, like i was just telling that to my husband like i see a lot of young people that are educated and are is they're just bubbling in big COVID, you know they just want to go out there and do something like mm -hmm. exploding to do something positive and you know but i but they're stuck in this rut and somebody just needs to go and you know pull the plug a little bit and give them that opportunity and and i think guys uh, it's going to happen soon so creating opportunities for them to go out and sort of prove themselves and use their knowledge yes like and it's hard when you move off reserve like i, I could tell you that it's i lived on we lived on reserve all our lives and we moved off reserve it was a the worst seven years of our well i can't say it was yeah it, it's a good learning experience we had a lot of learning experience because you know you're not taught how to mortgage a house you're not taught all this stuff when you live on reserve so i have a lot of uh, respect for non-natives now i know how tough it is uh when you guys uh, you know when you don't when you hit rock bottom you you lose everything mm -hmm. you know and you know that's it um, so when that Digby, even the, the, the battle that happened in Digby, I, I had more empathy. I, I can see more empathy with the French fishermen having problem with their losing their livelihood too, because, you know, they won't have nothing. And us Indians, we can go back to our reserves, although it's not a millionaire's life, it's a poverty life, whatever, but still we have the land base and we could build and whatever there has to be a balance somewhere where you can't take the livelihood away from anybody, including the Indians, because we were tired of living in poverty too. So that's part of the healing, taking away the residential school syndrome and all that cycle and all that stuff away. You know, it all boils down to all that. <laughs> if we had, like for us, like, like you said, the last seven years, we learned a lot, we struggled a lot, but we met a lot of wonderful people and we, we know that um, what's going on on reserve is wrong, mm -hmm. and we know that there's people out there that that uh, we're not alone. That we're not alone saying that it's wrong. And now, when this lawyer came in and talked to 200 of my people um, one on one, and I didn't hear their stories because I can't have privy to that because it's a like lawyer client thingy. Yes. Um, unless they tell me themselves. Um, so, um, you know the. Uh, people came out and you could see it the relief and some of them even said it's good that um, finally somebody is believing us or somebody's t uh, hearing our story you know yeah you know if anything that's good that their stories even for me it it helped with me yeah and I think I mean sharing your story helps other people understand as well because people from the outside might look in and not really understand why things are as they are yeah because a lot of people think, uh, non-natives thinks we get everything for free and, you know, but poverty is free, you know? Yeah. So, so you know, even whether you live off or on, off or on reserve, poverty is free. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you want to look at it like that. 
Um, but uh, And then when we move off reserve, we don't get any help. Like we're automatically told, go back to the reserve or you get jobs on the reserve. And because it, so it, it really is. Uh, and then language, we don't have French. We don't speak French. Yeah. And Brunswick is a bilingual language. So when we move off reserve, it's like, we don't have chances with jobs on that. So I keep telling them you can teach the kids how to speak, not just Micmac, but French and English. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and some now a lot of the young mothers, that's what they're doing. They're taking their kids to um, French schools in uh, Rishabaktu and, and that too. So, you know, but but that's that's the other thing that, that we face too is, is the language too. And, you know, we don't get a lot of stuff free, really. We, we work in, um, if you get a free house, it's half the time. It doesn't, it might meet the cold, but it'll fall apart within a month or, and a lot of time is one house, fa- families, three, three, four families live there. So they depreciate faster. And uh, it's just like, um, you go, like when I, last seven years, like I said, uh, when I lived off reserve, when I drive in Bikov, I would think I was going into a ghetto. As, mm-hmm. And I love my community, so now I'm back, and I've got you know, like good positive dreams, and I've met a lot of good people, and I've learned the outside how it works and everything like that. I don't, I, I'm not saying it's been the worst worst years. It means because I we struggled, we didn't know how to live like a. Uh, we learned how to live like a white person or an immigrant. That that's the other thing. We related more better with the immigrants while we were living off reserve. Well, I can see that because if you weren't taught, like you said, like how yeah. to get a mortgage and all that, that's all brand new. Like there's a steep learning curve there. Yeah, it's a culture shock. Yeah, it's it's a culture shock. And and for me, I had some already uh, because when after high school, I moved to Toronto, Mm -hmm. big city. And that's where I went. But that was like I just got raped a month later, two months later, I moved to a big city. So I was a wounded animal. And I talked about that in my book. So all of that. But my parents were there with me at the time I was young. But now as an adult, uh, when I moved out, there was nobody. And uh, it was a culture shock. And you do what you got to do and holy, holy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why when the Digby happened and uh, I did an interview, I like I, like I said, you know, I'm not mad at the, the fishermen, mm-hmm. the French fishermen, because they, you know, it's scary when you're, when you're out there and you're going to lose your livelihood. As Indians, it, you know, we just, we're just tired of living in poverty and we want better livelihoods. Yeah. We want a better life. So the government has to come in and kind of work through that, and and then and then you have to deal with like uh, you're dealing with people. It's and when you deal with French people, you know you're dealing with people that were that have also have fear uh, in their in their history after deportation. See, a lot of French people don't even know their history. Like um, they had to hide um, their their culture, their French, you know, their tap dancing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So they would have to sit at the windows as if they're just sitting there playing their little music tap dancing away and if the british walk by they wouldn't see them dancing they would just see the these little french their heads you know what i mean yeah because they had to hide it because they couldn't uh, they couldn't do their culture thing too so they have a history and then they have the deportation and that fear and that's generations is still there mm-hmm. you know regardless you know you still have that little fear so and that survived because my grandmother was french she was adopted on the reserve 
I was reading about survivors of the residential schools talking about how important it was to them for their healing to reconnect with their culture. Yes, yes, it's very important. I can so much relate to that because I remember um, I went to rehab in 1991 or 92 and I didn't have a, like, I never got into any heavy drugs. I only did marijuana in my time, but drinking, I would drink, but I wouldn't drink every day. It was at night, but still, it, like I said, I was, uh, I was raped in high school. So I had to probably deal with, I dealt with that issue yeah. at that time. So I ended up in, in rehab and it was in rehab that I learned the sweat lodge, the, the ceremonies and all that. And it, and it, and that was my tool. It gave me pride, mm-hmm. and uh, it gave it. That was my identity. Because growing up, we went to church, and we didn't do all that even on the reserve. Because there was a band. There was a band um, by the prime minister going back in the 1800s that we couldn't do our drumming, dancing, blah blah blah, all that stuff. We couldn't do all that traditional stuff. So we never learned it. In when I was younger, when I was in um, like elementary in our schools here, we would make our Indian dresses and all that. Uh, I still even have mine when I was in grade seven as a school projects and all that. Like that was taught in our schools and all that, but never really, really taught the the, the like the drumming, the, the spirituality. I think is the word. Yeah. The spirituality of our of our culture, until. Uh, I went to rehab, and and that was when I had the tools of surviving to to survive. Yeah, um, and when when I would hit, uh, if I had mentally like you know start getting negative thoughts, that's when you, you smudge and you do your you you get back to your spiritual. Um, that helps. So it gave much. you something to turn to in difficult times. Definitely yes, and I could see uh, the survivors of residential schools. Um, using that and now it's it's taught in our schools too in our in our uh, in, in the reserve like they do I think smudging and stuff like that they do even take the kids to sweat lodges now and stuff like that but back in like in the 1980s 1990s uh, when I was a teenager and all that I think we just had our 30 year anniversary for our powwow okay. we had our first powwow like 30 40 years ago after it was banned so it's just starting to come back our our culture our we're starting to share it more now even our history it's we're talking about it more uh and i think it had to do a lot with the residential school apology i think when that was made the only thing i remember after the apology was made and maybe a couple years later i I, even to this day i always said that you know they apologized but they didn't stop the abuse Hmm. and now i understand why because uh because it was in our schools, in our in Indian day schools, and I didn't know it. So they just looked you know? like at a little part of it almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they still even do it in our government. Uh, they dictate to our government how we govern our chief and council. And I talk about that in my book too, like how to, how can they corrupt it and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we, we face corruption. And I think that's the biggest that's the biggest thing that needs to be eliminated of everything. Uh, you know, we could talk about all the abuses and everything, but if we have corruption, then there was not going to be a, uh, you're going to have poverty because yeah, corruption is too expensive uh, that it cannot afford. uh, You know, it'll, it'll corruption causes poverty. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's why a lot of it is in here. But the federal government plays a role in making sure that there it's there and so that Indians are poor and what so us we have to stand up as as as, as Indians and, and stop it. And I think now in El Subuktuk, uh, we're heading there. We're slowly I think this Indian Day school thing is going to like I told the chief and council, you know, we all went through it and I think it's now the time is for us to close that chapter and move on. Yeah. So when I was in school, when they taught history, um, most of what we learned was French Acadian history. But one thing that was missing, I think, quite a bit, like residential schools and things like that weren't spoken about at all. Do you think it's important to teach that to children as part of Canadian history? Yes, I think so. But I think, you know, at a younger age you got to be more sensitive about it Mm -hmm. you know but uh yes it has it's just like the holocaust uh the jewish holocaust i think it needs to be taught it's our history it's canadian history Mm -hmm. just like the deportation needs to be taught i think it's 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 what made canada it's what made us survive today who we are so um yes and uh, and i think our kids um the next generations up will will have a better understanding. I know in Ilse Bukduk there's a lot more uh, mixed relationships now. There's yeah. a lot of lot more than they were even 10, 20 years ago. You know, we just like we used to. You know, it was Rexton, Rishabaktu, and Big Cove. So it was like a French, English, and uh, Micmac three three communities side by side and we all kind of mind each other's business you know but we would kind of interact to shop at the Bishop or Rexton and went to same high schools and fought in high schools too you know yeah. <laughs> but you know that's what it is that's life but now we become adults and in fact my book was a guy that lived across the river uh, did um, uh, editing for me he's an author um, Jason Lawson he wrote 10 big books or something like that so you know like back I remember when I first uh, he wrote a book called Vision his first book and I was uh, I was living inside the reserve and I don't think I would have known the outside reserve if I did not get involved in politics I too, I got involved in politics in 2010 I think I got I ran in the provincial election and the federal election so but I still lived on the reserve and so I kind of Know the like that's when I kind of got to know the outside because before that, it, like I didn't like people living across the river from me. I wouldn't, I didn't know them that much, or I didn't know them at all, really. Yeah. Because I, I was living on the reserve. I went to high school. I joined Indians. I joined some white people, like you know, a little bit in high school, and but was all like I said, everybody mind their own business kind of thing. Yeah. So it was, but now I see, you know, it's people are more, more integrated or more you know they interact so, more together yeah 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 so it's it, it's getting there and but like i said we need ilse book to us uh we need to do a lot of healing we've done a lot of healing but we need to do a lot more and there needs to be a lot like a government needs to get um changes need to be made especially in the housing and stuff like that more opportunities for the people yeah yeah because now that I see even the, the young generation, they get they get empowered learning about their history of, of residential school. And we survived a lot. We really did. 
as 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 Mi'kmaqs, we survived and and will survive five another five thousand years easy, mm-hmm. uh, because we're very we're very resilient and we're very we adapt to change easily and we're very um, we don't kind of like dwell on stuff kind of yeah. thing, you know. So we kind of deal with it and move on. Or but like I said, it's uh, I guess that's part of life. <laughs> yeah, I mean culturally, I think you're very strong and you've moved through so much but i think um, as a nation we can definitely do more to help create opportunities so that the healing can happen yes yeah i i I realized i see that a lot of people um you know have gone like when you talk to an indian person that lived on the reserve all their life uh, if you if you're facing suicide if you're facing death if you're facing um any kind of anything that negative happened to you, they probably already went through it. Yeah. And they probably uh, will have uh, empathy because they've. That's. I always say, you know, if you survive the res life, you'll survive anything. So, for people who are interested in learning more about First Nations history and culture in Canada, do you have any resources they can turn to? Books they can read, documentaries they can watch, anything like that you'd recommend? There, there is really, you could just, like, I, I, I do a lot of research on, like, Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaq history and stuff like that. And then I have a lot of um, people that I talk to and plus a lot that I was brought up with. And so I do a lot of, like, a lot of mix of that. Mm-hmm. So, but there's a lot of research if you, if you uh, Google it and read on it and then you kind of, like, get into it and then you'll see people like um, uh, Stephen J. Augustine I think he did a lot of history research in this area anyway uh, but he does say there's Métis and I disagree with that I don't think there's Métis in, I, I know there's no Métis in this area mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, my, my grandmother was full-blooded French she was adopted as a baby she was given to an Indian couple in Big Cove and she was raised and I didn't even know it that uh, I had any French blood in me until I think I was 30 or something like that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And she was, like, only, like, five feet and walked to, she was a midwife, and she was to walk to Rexton, like, that's, like, 20 kilometers, and to go get groceries. Like, she was, like, she lived to be, like, 93, and, I, you know, she was a, she was a spiky old woman, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, and I didn't, we didn't know that. She wouldn't talk about it. We nobody would never. Although my one of my cousins had blonde hair, we used to call her blonde hair, Wedjuis, which means a uh, French woman. Yeah. And she didn't like it, like you know, was <laughs> And and I and I noticed that because I did research on the Acadians too, because because of, of my grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. But I noticed that like around uh, in this area, because they lived close to a reserve, um, if they wouldn't talk about if they had any Indians blood in them, they wouldn't talk about it. It was a taboo. Mm-hmm. We were savages, but it was the same for us too. We wouldn't talk about if there was any French blood in the person, it was a taboo. Like, so it, I think that was reason why everybody kind of stayed away and mind their own business, you know? And I think it, that's the way it was brought up uh, culturally. But, but when people needed help, we would get together, and that was proven in 2013 when the shell gas protests happened, and when the, the, it was the it was people in St. Louis that asked the people in Cove to help them, and then we got together, and of course, you know, because that, like I said, 
if the non-natives lose their livelihood, their land and everything, they really have nothing. Yeah. So, you know, so that's when we got together and we fought it together. So we still live side by side and at the end of the day. Yeah. So we have to, you know, when we need to, we unite, you know, and after that, we go back to mind our own business again. <laughs> <laughs> like neighbors do, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 really, yeah. But uh, going through that, uh, that, that residential school, I say yes. It uh, it changed it changed a lot of communities, mm-hmm. changed a lot of things. Um, but you know, we survived, and the survivors. I think their kids need to be compensated also. Uh, the children of the survivors, because a lot of them were lost out in the opportunities of. Uh, of furthering their education or going even even like I said my husband's mother went all his brothers and sister didn't finish high school mm-hmm. um, our children out of three only one finished my oldest our oldest um, and I couldn't understand it because I was brought up I had to go to school and, and we were all had to go to school and but for some, and now I know why, because I went through the abuse in my own school and I didn't even realize it. Mm-hmm. I knew it, but I never talked about it. You know, it was never, it was kind of like buried away. It was only when they, they brought out the Indian Day School Settlement and everything that, holy man, what we went through was unreal. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. No problem. It's been a really enlightening conversation. I know I learned a lot, so I'm looking forward to sharing this with other people, and hopefully other people will, will learn some things as well. Yes, because uh, really, like um, like I said, the, the survivors are, for me, uh, I always thank them. I always, um, after the apology, I always went and thanked them because I did not go to residential school. And yet, I did not realize that I was attending Indian Day School, but their stories are worse in a ways because they were taken from their families. Mm-hmm. Us, we got to go home at night. They they were taken away from their parents, and they didn't understand why. So they were never given that that love of a mother's hug or a, or or you know or a father's. Um, teachings the men the boys didn't get that and the mother the girls didn't get that or none of them got the the motherly love that a child always needs every child needs and they were separated from their siblings often so they didn't even have that comfort they didn't have that they didn't have any of that they most of them when they left the schools um they would head to Boston a lot from I'm talking from here and here anyway probably out west the people probably went to the states they didn't return to their reserves until they became adults some of them returned some of them went back to their communities but a lot of them went to big cities they got into drugs and alcohol they a lot of them just um, ended up either being homeless or on the streets or 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 just struggling day by day to to live yeah and then their kids um, wouldn't um, didn't keep going either. Yeah. But now the grandkids, I think, some of them are are keep they're pushing their kids. But you know, we lost a lot, 
and they and one of them like you know they would run away from those schools some of them would freeze before they even got too far or, or if they get caught and mm-hmm. so they would protect each other too in those schools and they would hide each other and they would you know but when they got beaten like they would get beaten like oh when i always oh, I, I don't I didn't like hearing those stories when they talk about it, but I couldn't stop them either because that was part of their healing, eh? Right, the part of us understanding what what had happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It like you know, and then you know, but it's uh, but it's the same. Like uh, we we would get the beating too in our schools, but it wasn't as bad as theirs. I don't think. I I don't know. I couldn't. Oh. Some some stories they're just as bad. I'm sure they are, and I mean, abuse is abuse at one point, right? I was just gonna say that, and just when you look at like a four, five, six, seven, eight year old kid that does not understand nothing, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I even want to cry, and to be taken from their family and the mother, you know? Yeah, because I I don't think I could handle handle that. I don't know. I don't know how these mothers handled it back then and no wonder a lot of them became alcoholics and a lot of them you know what what else can you do right there's so much trauma and and at that time you don't have uh, the the support system you know the whole government is is against you and even uh you know and the rcmps when they get involved you know then you you really don't have nothing you don't have you don't have um rights then yeah because you know, so, and, and the government, that's that's who they would send. And that's why I just did a, an interview on that, that the RCMP, we need to re, re, recreate, not recreate it, but heal that, that whole department too. You know, a lot of healing has to happen with that one. Yeah, and that's like a whole, a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, it, but it's happening and, and, and it was part of our prophecies for us. So you know, we we for us something like this is not new to us. It's it's part for me. It's good because now I'm, I'm it gives hope for my kids, mm-hmm. my grandkids yet to come, and because my daughter just uh, is has a spouse that has a child, so I have one now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, but uh, we it's going to change. There's there's because it's wrong, and a lot of people are talking about it now, and, and it's like you, you're. You're you're talking about it, and yeah. So it's it's going to uh, people now know. And my people, when I say people, I think I I, I talk more about my people. Mm-hmm. We now know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it it's uh, before even if we said it was wrong, we were told it wasn't, kind of thing. So now it's more like um, it's like what my uh, some of the people said. Now some somebody's listening to us, yeah. or believe believe us. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing all of that. No problem. Um, I really appreciate it. And I will get myself a copy of your book because it sounds very interesting. <laughs> and if there's any other questions. Yeah, I'll definitely let you know. Um, and I, I do appreciate you taking the time. This has been one of the most inver- interesting conversations I've had with anyone in a long time. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, no problem. No problem. Thank you for calling and telling our story. Like, thank you for even on behalf of the residential school survivors, because a lot of them, you know, uh, took a hard time for them to even tell their stories. And then sometimes people, they believe they're not going to be believed or stuff like that, you know. 
because sometimes stuff they talk about it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, it keeps the dialogue going, and it'll keep us. We'll we'll uh, eventually heal that wound, close that wound. I hope so. I hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a really good day. You too. Thank you very much, and have a nice day, Danielle. I appreciate everyone that took the time to download the episode. Every listen is appreciated. You can find us on Instagram at Crime and Mystery Canada. Join our Facebook group, Crime and Mystery Canada, or email us at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone for listening, and have a good night.